listening to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that summarizes the top stories of the week. This week, we continue our coverage of the West Virginia Legislative Session with discussions from lawmakers and community stakeholders. We'll listen back to a few of our conversations with our guests this week on our program, The Legislature Today, as they discuss taxes, natural hair, and trans rights. We also hear about drug testing strips, new potato chips, and the state's broadband future. I'm your host this week, Chris Schultz. Let's jump right in with a few short news stories. A piece of legislation introduced last Friday aims to define sex-based terms used in state law. Emily Rice has the story. In a Monday press conference, Governor Jim Justice promoted House Bill 5243 alongside representatives from the Independent Women's Law Center and Independent Women's Voice. May Mailman is the director of the Independent Women's Law Center. She said allowing for interpretation of the word woman in the law is offensive. Judges, bureaucrats, sports bodies, and other elites seem not to know that women existed at all. They equated us to a state of mind. Identification replaced the biological reality that we have been living our entire lives. House Bill 5243 is being considered by the House Judiciary Committee. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. A bill that passed the Senate could open more recreational trails in West Virginia. Brianna Heaney has more. Senate Bill 196, the West Virginia Rails to Trails Bill, aims to encourage railway landowners to permit unused tracks to become trails for recreational use. Author of the bill, Senator Charles Trump, a Republican from Morgan County, says it would give liability protection to a railway landowner whose land is being used for the rail trail program. That's something that always concerns you know, any owner of land. Uh, if somebody gets hurt on his or her property, that they might get sued. And that's the fundamental purpose of the bill, to try to create uh, opportunities for expansion of rail trails and recreational opportunities for people. Trump says the legislation came at the request of the Berkeley County Commission to incentivize the development of rail trails. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. Two West Virginia culinary mainstays are coming together for flavor and charity. I have that story. Mr. B Potato Chips and Tudor's Biscuit World have joined together to offer a new biscuit and gravy flavored potato chip. Marianne Kettleson is the co-owner of Mr. B. She says it was a team effort to test and retest Tudor's iconic biscuits to make sure they got the chip flavor just right. It doesn't help your way, believe me, but we've always done that. With any any new product, we like to get it, you know, other people involved so that we can finally make a decision. And it works well, I think. A portion of the sales of every chip bag will support the work of Make-A-Wish West Virginia. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. Voter registration came under fire in a bill proposed in the House of Delegates Tuesday. Randy Yoey has more. Criminal actions regarding not voting but registering to vote sparked debate over House Bill 4017. The challenge section finds that any person who intentionally coerces or offers payment in exchange for a person to register to vote is guilty of a misdemeanor. House Minority Leader Sean Hornbuckle, a Democrat from Cabell County, asked, with no definition of the terms coerced or payment, could a college voter registration table giving away bottled water or the Secretary of State's high school voter registration campaign be seen as criminal acts? This piece of legislation could potentially not only harm those high school students, 
This could criminalize our Secretary of State. House Bill 4017 passed the House by a 90-7 vote. It will become effective January 1, 2025, if it passes the Senate. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston. The Senate passed and sent a bill to the House Wednesday that would add transparency and accountability to state-run facilities. Brianna Heaney has the story. Senate Bill 474 creates a critical incident review team to review an incident or death of a child under the care of the Department of Human Services or in the care of someone who has worked with DHS within the last 12 months. One of the authors of the bill, Senator Mike Wofel, a Democrat from Cabell County, says he hopes this is part of a new day for accountability of DHS. What we're trying to do is get to best practices. That is, how did this child die? What were the circumstances? And if you, if you look at the statute, at the bill, it has uh, an array. We have seven different members on this team with different backgrounds. So I really think it's a way we get to best practices. He says the bill is not focused on punitive measures, but remedial measures. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. A new phase of grant money should help local communities clear problem properties. News Director Eric Douglas has more. Nearly 1,300 dilapidated properties are slated to be torn down across 69 communities in the state. This comes through the second phase of the state's Reclamation of Abandoned and Dilapidated Properties program. Governor Jim Justice and the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection announced the funding Wednesday. It totals more than $15.6 million. To determine which projects to fund, the DEP sent surveys to all 55 counties and to all incorporated municipalities in West Virginia. The funding will reimburse communities for expenses related to the demolition. The money for this program comes from the American Rescue Plan Act. Selected communities have 12 months to spend their budgeted amount, with the possibility for a single six-month extension. After the projects are done, they will be reimbursed for their expenses. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Eric Douglas in Charleston. Gail Manchin, co-chair of the Appalachian Regional Commission and wife of U.S. Senator Joe Manchin, was struck by a driver in Alabama Monday. Jack Walker has an update on her condition. Gail Manchin was released from the hospital after a car crash earlier this week. On Monday, Gail Manchin and ARC congressional liaison Guy Land were struck by a driver who was fleeing police in Alabama. Manchin was discharged from the hospital Wednesday, but Land is still receiving treatment. Police officers attempted to stop the driver, Tradarel Rashad Boykins, in relation to a felony warrant and traffic offense. Boykins attempted to evade the officers, causing a seven-minute car chase and the collision. Boykins is now charged with two counts of felony assault, attempting to elude police and illegal possession of a firearm. Senator Joe Manchin released a statement after his wife's discharge Wednesday, thanking hospital staff and the public for their support. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jack Walker in Shepherdstown. Advocates from across the state gathered at the state capitol Thursday to bring attention to sexual violence. Emily Rice has the story. Today was Sexual Violence Awareness Day at the Capitol. The Foundation for Rape Information and Services, or FRIS, was in attendance to educate legislators and the public. Nikki Godfrey is the Assistant State Coordinator with FRIS. She said FRIS is focused on two issues this legislative session, updating the offense definition of extortion and exemptions for marital rape. I really feel like just addressing some of the misconceptions and providing 
some examples to folks of what that could look like and why it is important to individuals in West Virginia to add that protection. So I feel like that folks are really um, understanding and, and hearing it. On the Senate floor, Senator Patricia Rucker, a Republican from Jefferson County, spoke in favor of designating February 1st as Sexual Violence Awareness Day. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. More than 127,000 West Virginia households could lose access to their current internet service before the end of the spring unless Congress acts soon. Jack Walker has more. Unless Congress provides new funding to the Affordable Connectivity Program, more than 127,000 West Virginia households could lose internet access by May. The ACP provides broadband internet to millions of low-income households nationwide. But officials with the Federal Communications Commission, which oversees the program, said it lacks the funding to sustain itself beyond this year. The ACP is now informing users that their internet access could soon halt. Last month, a bipartisan group of U.S. lawmakers introduced the Affordable Connectivity Program Extension Act, which would allocate a new $7 billion to the ACP. Until then, however, FCC officials say they must continue preparing users for the potential program closure. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jack Walker in Shepherdstown. You're listening to West Virginia Week. And now, some of our top feature stories from the past week. Lawmakers are mulling over countless tax proposals that would directly affect West Virginians and their wallets. This past Friday for the legislature today, Randy Yoey spoke with Speaker of the House Roger Hanshaw, a Republican from Clay County, and Kelly Allen, the executive director at the West Virginia Center on Budget and Policy, to discuss budgets and taxes. Let's start with this 21 and a quarter percent personal income tax cut that we all have now. But there's triggers in place to graduate this by 10 percent over the next three years. But state budget analysts say there may be a slight downturn in revenue surpluses over that time. So how does that all compute? Uh, Mr. Speaker, let's start with you. Sure. Well, it's it's so it's it's a backward-looking mechanism, Randy. It's not a forward-looking mechanism. So we we want to be sensitive to that. We know that some of the the historic surpluses that we've seen over the course of the past four or five years are are just that. They're historic surpluses. They're not things that we can build a budget around. And we've tried not to build a budget around them and use them only for one-time capital expenditures and and investments that don't grow our base budget, specifically to deal with the temporal, temporary nature of these surpluses. We, we, we know that that's going to happen, but we also want to be forward-looking in, in, in terms of putting in place a structure that, that, when prudent and if appropriate, allows us to take additional bites at the state personal income tax. That's, that's how the formula works. It's a backward-looking process. It's, it's not based on projections or or, or fanciful expectations. It's, it's based on actual numbers. So we, we do want to be sensitive to that. We agree that, that, that that's the prudent thing to do. Does this all sound sound, Kelly? Well, I think the triggers create a lot of uncertainty going forward. You know, they're automatically baked into uh, the law and lawmakers don't have to take any action for them to go into place. So after five, six years of flat budgets, we're seeing a lot of pent up budget needs, which I think we can talk about. Um, and these triggers almost say that tax cuts will come at the front of the line uh, as budget needs emerge for lawmakers in real time as they're continuing or considering, you know, pay raises for teachers, expansions of the HOPE Scholarship, Medicaid, PEIA. Uh, so we're just really concerned about the uncertainty and how they might pit tax cuts further against really important state budget needs. But as you explained, these tax cuts come, or these possible triggers come with a number of variables that have to fall into line, right? 
Well, they do, they, they, they do, but it, it is a backward-looking mechanism, so it's not a forward-looking mechanism. So we, we do, when the triggers hit, they hit based upon collections and revenue okay, from okay, the okay. previous year. Right. So as long as the state's on a positive trajectory, those triggers are satisfied. So we, we want to be sensitive to the needs of, of continued investment in our state's physical infrastructure, our, the, the salary of our workers, compensation for our, our, our school teachers and school service personnel, members of the state police. All of our state workers and, and, and others are, are likely to be acted on even this year while we're in an environment in which we can do it. So all, all those things are important to us. We want to be sure we are doing the prudent thing here. Okay, so there's three Governor Justice proposed tax breaks to combine to about $50 million. Let's take them one at a time. The proposal for exempting Social Security income from personal income taxes now, include, now will include everybody, not just the low and middle income folks. Governor Justice says 50,000 50, households would be affected. Let's take me, for example. Mm -hmm. I'm 70 years old. I've been collecting Social Security now for three and a half years. My financial advisor says to put 10% of that aside every year to pay my federal and state taxes. That's a good chunk of change out of my pocket that I could be spending on something else. Well, this help me well we agree with that we agree that there that's a chunk of change that we'd like for you to, to not have to pay to the state we'd like for you to be able to spend that and pay it into the economy I do expect that we'll see movement on that bill in the house what do you think on that well I think considering more tax cuts when the last round of tax cuts hasn't even been fully enacted uh, the property tax rebates from last year's tax cuts won't hit the budget until fiscal year 2025 I think those are expected to cost about another 200 million dollars a year uh, and then again we've got these triggers really kind of hanging over our heads so it is really concerning to consider more tax cuts before we've seen the full impact of, of last year's. And I'd also say, you know, that the tax cuts that the governor proposed do come with opportunity costs. You know, we've heard things like our home health workers that care for our seniors as they age need a raise. That would cost about $50 million. So, um, you know, one thing that we can do comes at the cost of something else. So it's just really important to think of those services that benefit all seniors. Well, for those, yeah, but for the seniors collecting Social Security, there's many of them that, that don't have a job right now or have to get a part-time job as a greeter in Walmart or something like that. So that cut would really help them, right? I would guess most of those folks are probably already covered by the existing Social Security exemption. Um, I think this would cover about 10% of seniors. I think that's right. Okay. Um, then there's a credit equal to about 50% of the allowable child and dependent care credit. Mm -hmm. Explain that in layman's terms and who it helps. So child, child care is, is one of the, the absolute pillars of the state's overall strategy for economic development, Randy. The, the, for the this year, yes. Absolutely. The number one ask of, of West Virginia's business organizations and, and the largest business advocacy organization in West Virginia for two consecutive sessions now has not been tax cuts. It has not been regulatory reform. It's not been a change to the judicial structure. It's been child care. It's been new ways to care for the children of workers when the workers go off to fill the job opportunities that we're recruiting to West Virginia. This is a big deal for us. It's, it's, it's one of those rare moments in which nearly everybody is in agreement that this is something that needs to be done. That was House Speaker Roger Hanshaw and Kelly Allen from the West Virginia Center on Budget and Policy speaking with Randy Yowie for the legislature today. To hear the rest of that conversation, visit our website and tune into the legislature today every Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. A bill to legalize drug testing trips passed both chambers last week. Emily Rice has more. 
A drug test strip is a small strip of paper that can detect the presence of cutting agents like fentanyl in all different kinds of drugs. Under the current state code, drug testing strips are considered drug paraphernalia. This means someone who is found in possession of drugs can be additionally charged for possession of drug paraphernalia if they have drug testing strips. Senate Bill 269 removes drug testing strips from the state's list of drug paraphernalia. It passed the Senate on Tuesday and the House on Friday. Lawmakers passed a similar bill in 2022, exempting testing strips that detect fentanyl from that statute. House Bill 4373 went into effect in June of that year. Proponents of the bill, like Iris Sadiqman, who goes by they-them pronouns and is Harm Reduction Program Director for the Women's Health Center, say, it could save lives. They said while fentanyl testing strips have been useful, the newest cutting agent, xylazine, or Trank, is the most requested test strip. Under current state law, it would be illegal for the clinic to distribute xylazine tests. The most immediate thing that this legislation would allow is for us to distribute xylazine test strips, which many people have asked me about here at the clinic as part of our harm reduction program. People are interested in them. According to a 2023 report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in 2021, the highest rate of drug overdose deaths involving xylazine occurred in Region 3, which includes West Virginia. Sadiqman said people knowing what is in their drugs allows them to use more safely and better respond to overdoses around them. I think that they allow people to make better, more informed decisions about their health and what they do with their bodies. And I think that that's a good thing. Sadiqman said the harm reduction program aims to provide people with the tools necessary to stay healthy and safe while they navigate their lives. Whether or not they choose to end their substance use, reduce their substance use, whatever they choose. And in order for people to be able to make positive changes in their life, they have to be alive. Senator Eric Tarr, a Putnam County Republican, was the only vote against Senate Bill 269. In spite of all the efforts that we've made on these enablement measures, and that's what I see this is, it's just it's another enablement, feel-good measure, we are seeing still an escalation of our population that's using drugs. And, and being significantly harmed by them. Tar said he wants West Virginia to be the last place someone would want to use or sell drugs. West Virginia ought to be the absolute worst place in the country to be involved in the, the drug industry, illicit drug industry. This should be the absolute last place in the world you want to come to do drugs sell drugs, um, be busted for drugs, and frankly for rehab because our rehab has been uh, an abysmal failure. Sadiqman said the legalization of all drug testing strips will allow them and their team to stay ahead of the newest cutting agents. If there is a new drug that enters the supply that we, that testing strips are developed for, we would automatically be able to give those out and we wouldn't have to wait and go back to the legislature and get those legalized before being able to give them out. The bill now goes to the governor for his signature. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. That bill to legalize drug testing strips was signed into law by Governor Jim Justice this Friday, February 2nd. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. 
Lawmakers have introduced bills this session that they say protect single-sex spaces. Advocates with LGBTQ rights organizations, though, say the legislation follows a pattern of singling out transgender people for discrimination. Curtis Tate spoke with Eli Baumwell, Interim Executive Director of the ACLU West Virginia, and Isabella Cortez, Gender Policy Manager for Fairness West Virginia, about those efforts. I want to start by talking about uh, what the, what they are, they're calling the Women's Bill of Rights. Um, uh, the governor came out and endorsed it yesterday. Um, what should we know about that, Isabella? You know, frankly, the very first thing I would say about this bill is that it's insulting. So uh, they're touting this as the Women's Bill of Rights, and yet it doesn't actually give women any new rights, and it doesn't protect any of the rights that women already have. Uh, all it really does is restricts the rights of some women. And it's, like you said, the governor had a press conference about this yesterday with the uh, independent women's voice, who uh, these are out-of-state lobbyists who take money from the Koch brothers and they use this dark money to you know, oppose the Equal Rights Amendment, to oppose the Paycheck Fairness Act. And last year when Roe v. Wade was overturned, they, uh, they downplayed the significance of that and the severe and significant adverse effects that that has on women's health and their rights across the country. So again, saying that this is a women's bill of rights is just quite honestly laughable. Well, would it be correct to say that, that the bill could enable discrimination against transgender women specifically? That, that would be correct, yes. So what the bill, and you know, Eli is here and I'm sure he can get much more into the effects downstream. But what the bill does is it very rigidly micromanages the definitions of male and female and also has, um, has these uh, provisions for you know, private single sex space facilities. So yes, this bill is no easy way to say it aside from an early attempt to legislate transgender people out of existence. Uh, now, Eli, th this is not necessarily a new push here in, in West Virginia or any other state for that matter. From the ACLU's perspective, what, uh, what, what, what are your concerns? Well, I want to echo what, what Isabella said. You, you know, this really isn't a Bill of Rights in any way. And, and the ACLU, we are an organization that cares a lot about the Bill of Rights. So, um, you know, it's really concerning to see them take that language and co-opt it. Um, in a way that restricts the rights of people, particularly trans people, doesn't actually in incur any new rights. Um, it does fly in the face of evolving case law around ensuring that trans people have fair and equal access to um, spaces that, are, are, um, co that coincide with their gender identity. Um, so it's really concerning to see them do that. It's also very concerning to see the legislature try to um, override science to decide what and how uh, sex is determined and gender is determined. So these are just some of the concerns that we have as we watch this piece of legislation um, get introduced and, and some of the rhetoric around it. Well, let's um, take this chance to talk about something related. Uh, there's a bill called HB 4806, which um, is, is kind of you might call it a, a, a bathroom bill. It's very seems to be very similar to to what other states have enacted uh, that would that would restrict uh, transgender people from using the appropriate uh, restroom or locker room in a school. Um, now, I think 
when you testified in, in a House committee on this, you mentioned that, that there, there was a, ca uh, a case that went to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, in Virginia, uh, and, and the, right, uh, the right of a, a transgender male student was actually protected to, to use uh, the, the, the restroom that was appropriate for him. And, and I think you said that, that should, should this bill become law, it has the same sort of legal problems, perhaps, that, that that policy did in Virginia. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And so the, the case um, was, was the case of, of Grimm versus Glucoster County Schools. Uh, it was decided in 2020. Um, and after sort of a long, winding legal battle, the Fourth Circuit came out and very forcefully said trans identity is real, trans identity is valid. It is important that we protect trans people. And one of the ways we do that is by giving them access to bathrooms and very forcefully said, it is unconstitutional to restrict people or even to give them just single sex spaces or single use spaces and say, only you are allowed to do that, but you've got to sort of segregate, segregate yourself from the rest of the population. It's separate but equal. And I know that, that some people have thought that they could potentially repair the deficits in this bill by adding that single-use space. Um, but again, the Fourth Circuit looked at that and said, that is not okay. Um, and so this bill is, is very, very similar and, and worth pointing out that the Fourth Circuit is controlling for West Virginia. So West Virginia courts are bound to follow the Fourth Circuit. It's worth pointing out that the Supreme Court was asked to review this case and made a decision not to review it, to let the Fourth Circuit decision stand. Um, that was in 2021. I think it's also worth noting as we consider the wisdom of passing legislation like this that this one case cost uh, the county schools $1.3 million in attorney fees to litigate unsuccessfully. So there are a lot of problems with trying to pursue policy like this. That was Eli Balmwell and Isabella Cortez speaking with Curtis Tate about legislation singling out transgender people. Visit our website to hear the rest of the conversation. For the last several years, legislators have introduced bills that make it illegal to discriminate based on hair texture and style, typically referred to as the Crown Act, but it has never passed. Senator Mike Caputo, a Democrat from Marion County, introduced a bill already, and Delegate Anitra Hamilton, a Democrat from Monongalia County, has a version ready to introduce into the House. Reporter Brianna Heaney spoke with both of them to get their perspective. Can you guys talk to me about some of the bills that you guys are planning to propose or have proposed and why they are important? Well, there's two bills that I know of in the Senate, mine and, and Chairman Charlie Trump, uh, which made me very happy to see uh, you know, a man of his caliber introduce that bill. So you know, we, we need to talk about this. This is real. We've got examples of uh, basketball players being suspended uh, because of uh, the hairstyle they choose to wear. We've got examples of women uh, that just get discriminated in the workplace and, and put on you know, back row jobs because of their hairstyle, and it just shouldn't be. I mean, we, we just got to learn to let people be who they want to be. Uh, you know, I, don't, I don't see anything really hard about that. It's, it's, not a, it's not a difficult decision for me. So. And I'm introducing a bill as well dealing with the Crown Act, and as Senator said, it's so important. Um, it affects, this is the total essence of diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, being able to be who we are, express who we are, and it has zero to do with our abilities, our talents, our intellectual skill, um, and as Senator said, it should not and ought not be. Yeah, it's just plain and simple. I mean, 24 states already have this, from what I understand, and nature may be correct me if I'm wrong, and some cities in West Virginia have passed city 
ordinances, so to speak, to, to make sure this discriminatory practice does not happen in their city. So, you know, we need to think more about inclusion rather than exclusion. You know, it's a shame that we even have to waste time down here to talk about things that just should be uh, uh, normal to people, you know. So I hope to see it become law. It's been, uh, uh, I've introduced it for several years. Uh, I've co-sponsored it when I was in the House. I've introduced it as a lead sponsor on the Senate side. It's not made a committee meeting yet. We did have it on an agenda last year or the year before. I can't remember, but the chairman, for whatever reason, pulled the bill. So we never had to have the discussion. And we need to have the discussion. I think it's also important because hairstyle, hair texture, it dates back to our ancestry. So our history is who we are. Um, not only is it a part of our expression, it's core to who we are as a person. And I think that having ways to discriminate based on hair, hair texture, hairstyles, um, is just those minute ways to further divide us um, as a people, as a nation. I'm proud to say Mon County did, was one of the ones who passed an ordinance for the Crown Act. And I think that as West Virginia, we're really saying the motto, choose West Virginia, we have to uphold you know, the standards to say that you are welcome here, you are included here. And looking at different cases, even around the country, where kids are being placed in in-school suspension, they're having to um, attend school at an outside facility because of the length or the style of their hair is absolutely ridiculous. They're, they're losing valuable education time. And we know here in West Virginia, education is one of the sore points of where we're trying to get our reading scores, our math scores up. So I feel like we're focusing on the wrong things. We're clearly focusing on the wrong things. And when it comes to hair, we also have to realize the standard of beauty that was set. And it's very unfair um, to try to conform everybody to a standard of beauty um, you know, that may not apply to especially women of color, black women. Um, and it has health benefits. You know, straightening our hair, there has been many cases to show where women are um, being stricken with cancer, um, the psychological effects. So this bill is so important in so many ways. It's just not about appearance, but it's really about the self-esteem, the confidence, and the ability of this state to say, we want more people here and more people that looks particularly like me. That was Delegate Anitra Hamilton and Senator Mike Caputo speaking with reporter Brianna Heaney for the legislature today about the Crown Act. As with the other interviews you've heard this episode, you can hear the rest on our website. And make sure to tune in every day at 6 p.m. for the legislature today. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm Chris Schultz.